turn with me this morning in your copy of God's Word to the book of James. As we continue to study this wonderful letter together. We're going to be reading this morning verses 8 through 16 together. Would you pray with me? Lord, our God, we pray now that as we turn to your word, you would fix our thoughts and our hearts and our affections upon you. God, that we would put aside the distractions of of this morning, uh, of, of the week that is already past, or the thoughts that we have about the things that are coming up in the week to come. God, that we would focus on your word and how it teaches us about you and So, Father, we pray that as we now read it, that you would grace us with understanding and wisdom and that you would implant deep within us from it truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. James chapter 4, verses 8 through 16. says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge." There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Well, if you're visiting with us, we've been studying this very practical letter from James. that he has written to the Christians about how to live a Christian life. And he has been building up an understanding of what it means to be a true Christian. He's been giving us characteristics of true Christianity and what it looks like. And he's gone as so far as to help us to see that our actions and the lives that we lead, they point to one of two realities. So that you can look at your life, you can look at the actions in your life, you can look at your obedience to the scriptures, you can look at the fruit, if you will, from the tree that is produced, and you can know whether or not one of two realities is present. Either you can tell whether or not you are at peace with God and an enemy of the world, as we saw last time, or whether or not you are a friend of the world and necessarily then an enemy of God. For that's If you were with us last week at the beginning of chapter 4 where we find ourselves this morning... What you know is that what he has sort of come now to conclude and to argue is that these two realities are diametrically opposed to one another. 
that one who befriends the world and orients his life according to the wisdom of the world necessarily then makes himself a, an enemy of God. And the converse is true, that one who listens to the wisdom from heaven, he uses this language from above. That is to say, the wisdom of God that comes to us through the scriptures, that one who lives and orients and administrates his life according to the wisdom of God and not according to the wisdom of the world, that he is a friend of God and necessarily then at enmity with the world. For you cannot serve God and man. You cannot have two masters. And wherever your heart is, there your treasure is also. So that these two realities then are present. One of them is present within us. True faith, saving faith, or what James calls empty or dead faith. Right? These, these oppose true Christianity and dead hypocritical Christianity of those who call themselves Christians, claim to be Christians, say that they love Jesus and have a relationship with him, but what? But their lives don't look anything like a Christian. There's no obedience to the scriptures. They're not keeping the commands of God. They're not forsaking the things he's commanded them to forsake. There's no holiness. And they're characterized by worldliness, which is the context that we're given in chapter 4, this discussion of worldliness. And one of the main characteristics of the Christian life, of the true Christian life, one of the sort of key graces, if you will, that is evident in the life of those who are at peace with God is the characteristic of humility. And so James then intends this morning to unpack the necessary characteristics of those who are at peace with God, namely the characteristics of humility. Notice, notice what he says here. He tells us in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So there is this relational aspect. He's pointing to those who are friends of God, who are at peace with God and enemies of the world. Remember back in 6, he says, you know, God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. See their humility. Then in verse 7, submit yourselves therefore then to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right, So the, the humility of submission, so that then the, so that then the reality is, or the, the result is, in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is, in this humility and submission, we are called then to be near to God and God will be near to us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Notice down in verse 10, he picks it back up after he's given some explanation and unpacked it a little bit. He reminds them, therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So the issue of humility is seen again. So that in the verses that are before us this morning, he is going to focus in on those who are at peace with God, who are not friends of the world, but who are enemies of the world, those who are true Christians and who are characterized by a life of true faith and obedience. Okay, And in their life, one necessary characteristic is going to be humility. For it is in humility that we come to God, and it is in humility that we remain with God, ever dependent upon His grace for our sustenance. It is in humility that we recognize our sin and our need for Jesus, it is in humility that we understand our separation from God that is caused by our sin. And it is in humility that we cry out to him to work in us a work that is alien to us and to do for us something that we cannot do for ourselves. So it is in humility then, knowing where we have come from and how we 
uh, are so undeserving of the grace that we have received, not only that we come to God and remain in him, but then also in humility that we live with one another. You see that, that this humility that he speaks of is an all-encompassing characteristic of a true Christian. And that true Christianity necessarily is characterized by true humility, where we are not striving for ourselves, but for the God who has saved and redeemed us. And so as he unpacks this humility, he is going to show us that it expresses itself in our life in at least three ways. Now, listen, these are not all of the ways that Christian humility expresses itself. This is not a complete or a total list. But what it does mean is that these are three significant or substantial expressions of true Christian humility in the Christian life. So that you can at You can say if these three are not at least present in your life, though there may be other things that need to be present also, but if these three things are not present in your life, then you are not characterized by the true humility that is of a Christian, of one who is at peace with God. So let's look and see what these three expressions of humility are. First, one of the characteristics or expressions of true Christian humility is that of repentance. Repentance. Notice what he says in verse 6. He declares God opposing the proud but giving grace. Notice there this free gift is by grace that we are saved. This grace comes to those who are humble, that submit themselves to God, he says in verse 7. And so then he tells us to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The question though is if we are commanded to draw nigh to God... Is there a specific posture in which we must draw, in, in, in which we must come? If we're going to come to him, to be near to him, can we come however we want? Right? That's actually a popular theme among many Christians today, right? Just come. You, you, just, you just come to God however you want. You just draw near to God and he's going to love you just like you are. Well, let me... Let me clarify that just a little bit. Friends, all you can do is come just like you are. So, so that in respect of your effort and, and righteousness, you have nothing to offer. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But friends, do not think that that is giving you a license to stroll arrogantly into God's presence and to demand that he acknowledge your sin and honor you in spite of it. For those are very different realities, are they not? You are not coming with any meritorious effort. But friends, when we come to God, the only posture with which any sinner can approach the God Almighty is on his face before him. Do you understand that? So what does he say? Look, this this characteristic, this expression of humility, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then look, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Don't just come with filthy hands. Repent. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then, and then the refrain, humble yourselves then before the Lord. Do you, do you see what it means to be humble before God? That if he opposes the proud and the arrogant, but he blesses and exalts those who are found in humility, what does that humility look like? That humility first looks like repentance. Friends, and repentance is not just being sorry that you got caught in your sin. Friends, repentance is not just 
saying, oh, I'm, I feel really bad about that because of whatever it caused or because I got caught or whatever the consequences were, so I'm, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to do that again. And then five minutes later, you, you're right back in the midst of the same sin that you were doing. That's not to say that you're never going to do it again. But friends, true repentance is characterized by brokenness over sin, an understanding that one, that, that one has offended the almighty God and judge of the universe. Not just that you've hurt your brother, but that you have hurt God himself in transgressing his law. That your sin deserves punishment and death and hell. That we are interested in striving by the power of the Holy Spirit to turn from our sin and put it to death and walk in sin no more. Friends, God bestows grace upon grace upon grace immeasurably. But all through the gospel accounts, as we saw, as we studied Mark and elsewhere, I mean, think about, just, just to my mind, the woman at the well who Christ meets in his journeys, who is entrenched in sexual immorality and sin. And yeah, I mean, he acknowledges that she's, all these husbands you've had, all these men you've had, and the one you now live with is not your husband. She could, I mean, she, she, it, it was what it was. She was a sinner. She was all, she was entrenched in her sin. But did he just say, oh, but I'm just, I, he, he loved her in spite of her sin and he was willing to forgive her. But what did he tell her? Go and sin no more, right? Put your sin to death and turn from it. That friends, that's true repentance. And that's what we see here. Notice first that this true repentance is all encompassing. I said that a moment ago. He uses this old Testament language. It alludes back to Back to the Levitical laws for God's people in the Old Testament for purity. And the way in which they had to prepare in order to come into worship. To cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. The cleansing of one's hands was an expression of the filthy deeds that we had done. God commanded Moses and Aaron in Exodus to put a basin in a certain place between certain buildings so that they could clean their hands and wash their hands of their filthiness and their transgression before they entered into a place of worship. Lest they enter in inappropriately and and, and die. And, And so they had to clean themselves. This idea of washing and cleaning one's hands because we are sinners, because we have transgressed God's law, because we stand opposed to him. And then notice what he says also, it's not just the problem, friends, it's not just that you do bad things, is it? Right? Why do we do bad things? Because we have dark hearts. You can wash your hands until they're raw. You'll still be dirty. You'll still be dirty because no matter how many times you wash your hands, they will find something dirty to get into again because the dirtiness is in here. And so repentance is not just forsaking of the deeds. It is forsaking of the dark heart. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. This language of double-minded, this idea that we can dabble in the world and yet honor God. We can play with sin and be stained by sin and yet be washed by the blood of Christ, that we can have a little bit of both. He says, yeah, wash your hands, repent of your deeds, turn from them, do them no longer. But friends, they are simply the expression of the problem on the inside. Wash your hands and let Jesus wash your hearts. 
Do you, do you see that, it, that until you're washed on the inside, you can only be dirty on the outside? For what comes out of a man, Jesus said, is that which defiles him because it is an expression of his heart and the filthiness that is on the inside. So he uses this Old Testament language of purity. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded people. But then he goes even a step further. It's not just that they are to repent of the things that they have done in this posture of humility. In this posture of humility, they are to be broken and sorrowful for what they've done. Beyond simply committing to do it no longer and seeking a washing from Christ, look at what he says, verse 9. Again, Old Testament language, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Friends, do you see what he's alluding to here? Two things. On the one hand, there were these practices that people for many, 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 many years, for hundreds, for thousands of years, these practices, they were outward expressions of their inward brokenness about their sin. They would wear certain types of clothing. They would tear their clothing. They would put ashes on them. They would... They would mourn and weep because of their sinfulness and because of their transgression. Friends, how far we've come, and I think even in, I think even in this day, how far had they come that, that James must implore these Christians not to be laughing about their sin and not to be joyful, not to find joy in your sin. Does that, that ought to remind you of what we read at the very beginning of James. Back in James chapter 1, doesn't it? As he began his discussion. At the very, very beginning of those who are true Christians, what? Count it all joy, my brothers. Remember James, very interested in the subject of Christian joy and the source of Christian joy. Do you see that he's come full circle now? And he says, friends, if your sin and your transgression and your relationship with the world is your source of joy, there's a problem. Let your laughter and your joy be turned to gloom and sadness. You say, well, that's pretty, I mean, that's depressing, brother. I mean, let's, let's have a little fun here. Friends, there's nothing, there's nothing fun about sin. I mean, it, listen, listen, it's fun for the moment. That's why we do it. But when we begin to reflect upon the offense that it is against God and the result of it, and the damage that it does is to our soul and to our families and to those around us. To our testimony to believe in Christ. Friends, the fast lane slows down in a hurry. He, he says, don't find joy in the world and in your sin and your relationship with the world. He says, be broken. Be weeping and mourning. I have to confess to you, I won't even ask you, you can ask yourself, but it has been far too long since I've wept because of my sinfulness and been broken to that extent because of the offense that my life often is to God Almighty. Friends, do we mourn our sin? Or do we think it's not that big of a deal? Everybody falls and messes up, you know, God's loving and kind. We, we don't walk outside and feel like we're under judgment. God's not sending lightning bolts to strike us in the hind quarters, you know. And I, and, I think we, and I think we sort of get to this complacency 
in this place of satisfaction with our sin, that it's not that big of a deal. Do you see what he says here? That true Christian humility is characterized by this type of repentance, a repentance that is all-encompassing, not only sorrowful and repenting of the deeds, but seeking a restoration and repentance of the heart. It is a repentance that is characterized by a sorrowful uh, approach to sin, one who considers their sin to be a serious problem and a serious offense against God. But then look at verse 10, the last thing about it, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord. Why? Break, be broken over your sin, mourn and weep, wear sackcloth and ashes, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Because in doing so, you will humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. Do you see that in your sin and finding joy and satisfaction in your sin, that you are really resting in yourself and looking inwardly for exaltation? Thinking you're okay, thinking you're really good, wanting to be something inside and from within. And, and what he's encouraging Christians to do is that to realize that true Christian humility is one who recognizes that we are nothing but wretched sinners before God. Repent of your sin, be broken of your sin, and be on your face before God Almighty because those who are on their face before God are given a standing in his court. What does Paul say? How is it, sinner, that you come to have a standing before an almighty God? That the sinner stands in the court of the holy. Friends, it's on account of the exaltation that God gives. So not only is it an all-encompassing reality, repenting, an an all-encompassing repentance, it's a repentance that is characterized by brokenness over sin. It is a repentance that trusts and looks to God for restoration and exaltation, not within. Ultimately, Friends, repentance is self-denying. It is a self-denying act, while an unwillingness to truly repent is a self-exalting act, where we hold on to our sin. Do you see then that repentance is the opposite of self-centeredness? James was speaking about self-centeredness back at the beginning of chapter 4, wasn't he? That we quarrel and fight among each other. Why? Because we don't have and want And we're trying to satisfy the desires of our own hearts and looking within this self-centered mindset. It is the opposite of Christian humility. And one of the ways we know is whether or not we're willing to deny ourselves and our sin and look to Jesus who saves. Secondly, this, this humility, this true Christian humility, it will be characterized or it will express itself in our life, not only through repentance, but through kindness, through kindness. Look at verses 11 and following. He moves on. He moves on to the way that we relate with one another, picking up again the language of evil speaking. If you go back to chapter 3, the opening verses of chapter 3 were about taming the tongue, right? The damage that we can do with our words, speaking against and about one another. He picks it back up. Look at, look at, cha- look at chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Notice it's in the body to brothers and sisters in Christ. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And remember, he's already commanded us to not be hearers, but to be doers of the word. That is the law of God. Then in 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, before I can tell you, Before it's of any benefit to us to to parse out what he's saying positively here, let me tell you what he's not saying. 
We live in a world that, that, listen, we live in a community and a culture and a world, especially in our westernized American culture, that is really big on telling, t- telling everybody that will listen and even those that won't, don't judge me. And then they quote from places like James chapter 4 or like Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says what? Judge not lest you be judged. They said, don't judge me. Don't, don't tell me what I'm doing is sin. Don't tell me that my life is, don't tell me anything about me is wrong. Don't judge me. Friends, let me just tell you very plainly and simply, that is not what James is talking about here. Let me, let me give you a, let me get a, let me, let me give you a, a couple of reasons why that cannot be what he's talking about. One, because Christians are commanded elsewhere in scripture to judge both themselves and others actions according to the scriptures. We are called to be wise and discriminatory about the things that we watch, the things that we listen to, the people we surround ourselves with, and the advice we take. Friends, how can we do that if we are not allowed biblically to make any judgments about anybody else, the things they say, and the life they lead? To take the Bible and to hold one's life up against the testimony of Scripture. If that's what the Bible is encouraging in Matthew 7 and in James 4, then it is a contradictory document because it is requiring something of us that it commands us not to do. And that simply cannot be the case. And friends, to make it almost a bit funny, let's consider whether or not James could have kept that very command. What has James been doing for four chapters? He's been writing a letter to us about how to judge whether or not one's life points to the reality of one's profession of faith in Jesus. To be fruit inspectors. But he's been encouraging them to do that. And then even farther, James, in giving us these verses, 11 and 12, what does he do? The second half of verse 11, he makes a judgment about those who speak evil against others. He's judging those who he's telling not to judge others. And he's judging those who are judging others. Listen, I want to make it more complicated. Look, he says, don't do this. Do not speak evil against one another. Why? Because the one who does this or judges his brother, what? He does something. He is speaking evil against the law and he is making himself a judge of the law. (laughs) James is taking the scriptures and a biblical perspective and worldview and he is applying it to those who speak evil against their brother. Do, Do you see that? It simply cannot be. What James is talking about is exactly that. Namely, gossip, slander, backbiting, the same kind of language that he was talking about in James chapter 3. It is denigrating language where we gossip and talk about our brothers and sisters in Christ in the body when they are not present. Friends, listen. One of the most loving things that you can do for your brother or sister in Christ is go to them in love and speak difficult truths to them, to their face, to call them to realize that their life is not in accord with Scripture, to study it together, to call them to repent and believe in Jesus. But friends, the opposite is also true. One of the most demeaning, disrespectful, and damaging things that you can possibly do for your brother or sister in Christ is talk about their weakness behind their back. Because what's going on when you do that? What? Again, self-centeredness and self-service, isn't it? You're making them look bad. Why? 
because it makes you look better. I mean, let me not say you, we. I am making them look bad because it is an attempt and an effort to make myself look better. Because then they're not as holy as I am, are they? They're not as faithful as I am. They're not as, they're not as smart or funny or handsome or kind or genuine or gentle as I am. Friends, ultimately the most slanderous, hurtful, sinful speech comes from our own selfish desire to be somebody and to make something of ourselves. Rather, back up just a few verses, than humbling ourselves before God so that what? He will exalt you. Do you, do you see how these things tie together? Do you see how these things tie together? He is, in, he is encouraging Christians to find true Christian humility, humbling ourselves before God and let God exalt us rather than talking about one another and gossiping about one another and slandering one another, defaming one another on account of exalting ourselves. Again, it's the sin of self-centeredness and self-service. And friends, it is that self-centeredness and service that is the opposite of true Christian humility. It's not just your brother that you destroy, though. What does he mean with all this business about becoming a judge then of the law? Because notice when he says, don't judge, he's talking about judging the law here. You've made yourself a judge of the law. Why? Because God commands us not to gossip and not to slander. And God's law requires that we love one another and extend grace to one another and are patient and kind with one another, and that we love one another enough to speak difficult truths in love to one another, to call one another to repentance. God's Word commands us to do that, so when we are unwilling to do so, and when we slander one another and gossip one another and backbite against each other, guess what we're doing? Not only are we hurting the one to whom we speak or speak about, we are offending God and His law, and we are judging that His law is insufficient or untrue. That I don't have to keep it, and it, it may say that, it may call me to that, but it's not really that big of a deal because I'm going to continue to do this anyway. Does that make sense? That's the force of the text in James chapter 4. Do not speak evil against your brothers, because in doing so, you judge the law of God, and you make it, you make it nothing. You nullify it. You come under condemnation because of your unwillingness to repent and submit yourself then to him. So like repentance, kindness Kindness that is characterized by genuine love of the brothers and sisters and neighbors. Friends, love of them when they don't deserve it. Love of me when I say something wrong or forget, uh, forget some, something significant for you. That you, lo- that you love me and, and that, you, that you relate to me and to one another with kindness. Genuine humility leads to kindness, friends. Self-centeredness. And self-serving effort leads to quarrels and fighting. That's what we talked about at the beginning of chapter 4. Genuine humility leads to kindness. Thirdly, repentance, kindness. But there is one other expression of this genuine Christian humility, I think, that he speaks about. And it's the last few verses, verses 13 to 16, or 13 to 17. And that is confidence. Look at what he says. I love these verses. I had an old man in my church in Polkville that used to, one of my oldest church members, and he used to quote these verses on a regular basis. I guess at 82 or 3 at that time, with some pancreatic cancer, he had a whole different perspective on what tomorrow held, didn't he? And he quoted these verses all the time. 
He was the epitome of living every moment in utter confidence in God, trusting in him to keep him. Anyway, let's look at these verses. Verse 13, come now, you say, today or tomorrow we will, give into such and, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. <laughs> Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that is a vapor that appears for a moment and then poof, it's gone, vanishes. Instead of this, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So first confidence. Who do you trust? I mean, really, who do you trust? Because genuine Christian humility is characterized by an utter and complete confidence in God and him only, isn't it? Go back up to the very beginning of these verses and verses, uh, verses 7 and 8, what? We are to submit ourselves to God. That is to his knowledge. That is to his plan. That is to his will. That is to his providence. That is to his care and kindness for us. That is to his grace that we are to submit wholly to God as an expression, as the ultimate expression of our humility before him. And that submission to him, not only does it bring about our sustenance in life, it brings about our salvation in eternity. For it's the only way that men come into a relationship with him. And so he says, submit yourselves to God. And then he calls us, do not presume upon God's grace. Do not presume upon God's grace. For just like I was speaking a moment ago, that just like how we don't feel like we're under judgment all the time, and so we don't think our sin is really that big of a deal. You know what else? We don't always feel his hand working. We can't always see and understand the things that God is doing. And we are prone to wonder. You know, I didn't do too bad. Maybe I'm the one who figured out how to fix that problem. Maybe I'm the one who was really diligently working to bring about whatever end it is that you are interested in. And we begin to, to fall prey to the sin of confidence in self. Don't we? So that we're willing to say, well, I'm going to go tomorrow and do this. And I'm going to go over here tomorrow and I'm going to do this. When we forget that you won't go anywhere that God doesn't allow Friends, further, you won't go anywhere that God doesn't take you. Do we really believe that if God stopped holding us this very moment, that we would all perish? That it is only by his gracious and merciful care that every millisecond that not a sparrow falls from the tree unless God lets it go. How much more does he care for his own? For the crown of his creation? For those into whom he breathed the breath of life? Those that he sent his only son Jesus to get? Those whom he has gone far to bring near to himself? Friends, do you see that what he's encouraging is not that we have some specific language. When he says you ought to say it this way, he doesn't mean literally that you ought to say it that way. What he means is that that, that, that speech ought to be the expression of the true feelings of your heart. That we are ever cognizant and aware of God's providential care and leadership in our lives. Of the direction and power of his Holy Spirit to take and move. 
of our resting in Him, of our going in Him, of our doing in Him, where we are utterly confident in God, where we recognize, notice in this passage, we, we're not, we shouldn't say that we're going to do this. Why? Because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. We are ignorant of the future. Beyond that, we are limited. What is your life? You are here one moment like a mist or a vapor and then vanishing the next. We should not have confidence in ourselves because we don't know the future. We should not have confidence in ourselves because we are ultimately and necessarily limited. We're limited in days. They are numbered. We will all perish and die. We are limited in understanding and knowledge. And friends, we're limited to change the future. We're limited to set the course of time in history. We are utterly limited. That's what he says. For you are a mist. Recognize your limitation. Your finiteness. Friends, and then thirdly, he says, we're not to depend upon ourselves, but utterly in confidence in God. Not only because of these two things, but because apart from God upholding us by his grace, we are nothing. I love this. Don't miss this. Maybe my favorite little ditty in this whole verse. Look at verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say this as an expression of your heart. If God wills it, we will live. Notice he could have just skipped to the second half of that. If God wills, we will go to the town. If God wills, we'll, you know, God willing, I'll see you tomorrow. No, God willing, I'll make it to the next second. God willing, I'll take my next breath. God willing, I'll step into eternity covered by the blood of Jesus. Do you see that we are not to depend upon ourselves? Because ultimately, as finite, limited, ignorant sinners, we are nothing apart from the upholding grace of God Almighty, that if God wills it, we shall live. Friends, and if God wills it, we shall die. That's, friends, that's a good, that's a, that's a reality for which we can give praise. You know why? Because what it means is, if you don't have it, and friends, you believe this, then you must not need it. The, the ability to have that kind of confidence in God that if you needed it, God would give it to you. To know that God is with you. Friends, some of you are trotting a dark valley even this morning that I don't know about. Some of you have passed through the valley this week, and I do know about that, and are maybe on your way up to the mountaintop a bit. Friends, to know that in the valley, God is always with you. That he walks with you. More than that, that he carries you. That he has a plan for you. Can, can you trust that? To know that he keeps you every moment by his grace. Friends, do you see how now James can go back to James chapter 1? After he's made all this argumentation for four chapters. And say, brothers, count it all joy when you come into various trials. Humble yourself before God and let him exalt you, and that joy will be found. Friends, true Christianity is necessarily characterized by Christian humility. And if humility is something that is absent from your life, the humility of repentance, the humility of kindness, the humility of confidence in God, 
Friends, all I can tell you is to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. Because if, because if that humility is totally absent from your life, then it may point to the inward reality that the problem is you just don't know him. You say, what do I have to do to know him, to, to get that kind of humility? Repent and believe in Jesus. Trust in his obedience and his righteousness alone, the sacrifice that he made for your sin and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning humbly, acknowledging that we are nothing apart from you, that you are the vine and we are the branches, that, that, that if you were to stop supplying our life this very second, our life would cease to be. God, that if you did not save us, we would not be saved. If you did not give us faith, we would not believe. Father, if you did not work in us a work that is alien to us, this humility would never be possible. So, Father, these things are all signs that point to the reality of our heart, and that is that we know and love you. Father, we don't have anything to bring you this morning. Our best efforts are pitiful, but we have Jesus. We're covered by his blood. And God, we have a righteousness that he has accomplished for us. So God, we pray this morning that in our humility that you would see us through Christ. And that in him you would make us what you want us to be. May we never be characterized by arrogant, self-centered effort. Making something of ourselves, building ourselves up, confident in ourselves. Father, may we, care, may we be characterized by self-denial, repenting of ourselves and our sin, putting our brothers ahead of ourselves, and God confident only in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.